You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. You know, there are two ways to lose something. There's the easy way and then there's the hard way. Um, the easy way to lose something is normally reserved for things like keys, uh, wallets, uh, young children in Maya or David Jones. <laughs> uh, the hard way, uh, the hard way is dedicated to things like chewing gum on your shoe. I don't know if you tried to get rid of chewing gum on your shoe, but no matter how much you, you get rid of it, it just sticks. And the point I'm trying to make is that when we talk about losing your religion, you have to understand that I'm talking about the hard way. In fact, it's, it's a hard thing to do, to lose your religion. Religion is, there's, a, there's an inherent stickiness to religion. That our hearts are, that's what we learned last week, right? That our hearts are always going back to that, that we're always in, inherently religious. That we learned last week that uh, you will always be MacGyvering if you're always Maguiring, right? <laughs> and that is you will always be trying to grab this fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and externally attach it to your life if you are Maguiring, if you are like Jerry Maguire trying to bust into a lounge room and say to someone or something, you complete me. So religion's sticky. We're always, we're always inherently religious people. And so what we've been learning in this series is we've got to drop that. And so week one, we looked at the difference between religion and Christianity. There is a difference, by the way. Uh, then in week two, we saw that, uh, that there are often two types of people that are doing exactly the same thing. We call them the religious on one hand and the irreligious on the other. But they're doing the same thing, trying to be their own saviour, live life their own way. As Burger King says, have it your way. <laughs> That's what they're trying to do. And the gospel is the third way. Last week we said, you know, those people that say, give me spirituality any day. You know, I don't want the doctrine. I don't want the law. I don't want all this Bible stuff. Give me spirituality. And we discovered that Christianity is a spirituality. And that when Jesus is clearly portrayed to you, it moves you. You have an aha moment and it changes you. Tonight, we're going to look at how Christianity is a battle. In fact, we're going to build on last week. We're going to look at the way that it's a battle. So here's where we're going tonight. Paul says, if you want to lose your religion well and truly, you have to crucify the sinful nature. That's what my retro 1984 NIV says. Crucify the sinful nature. Funny biblical language. We're going to look at what that means. Why do you need to approach it that way? What does the sinful nature mean? What is it all about? How do you crucify it? Why do you need to go that way? What is it? How do you crucify it? Simple as that. Why have you got to go into this way with this funny language? If you want to be a changed person to crucify the sinful nature. Because the reason is there's a fundamental problem with religion. Now, we've been critiquing religion. Another critique of religion is this. There's a real problem with religion. And it's in verse 23 that Paul gets at. Verse 22 to 23. He's saying the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Pause for a second. We're not going to go into that tonight. We did three weeks of that in the character series at the beginning of the year uh, when we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, which was the sister passage to this. So we're not going to explore the fruits of the Spirit. We're just going to explore these two verses where it says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And so it says, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then he says, against such things, there is no law. Now, what does he mean by that? The funny way of saying things. What does it mean? Simply means this. Imagine that there is a law against joylessness. You know, wake up out of bed, you're a bit grumpy. You know, it's a Monday morning. 
There's a law against joylessness. Uh, what if, on the other hand, there's a law against anxiety? What if there were laws against that sort of stuff? There wouldn't be. Why? Because they'd be useless. Those sorts of laws, you can't legislate against that sort of stuff. Why? Because law is a form of moral restraint. And that's what we've come to know what religion is. That's what MacGyvering can be to external moral restraint. That's what law is. So here's the problem with the law. Here's the problem with religion. Law can stop the results of a messed up heart, but it can't stop the reasons for a messed up heart. You hear that? Law can stop the results of a messed up heart, but it can't stop the reasons for a messed up heart. Now, an example of this is in murder. You, 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 a good law, and we've got lots of them in this country, can stop the anger, but it, can't, it, it can stop the murder, but it can't stop the anger of the messed up heart underneath the murder. Think about it. You know, a good law can stop theft, but it can't stop the jealousy and the envy that is part of the messed up heart that causes the theft. See? Now, law can't do that. You want a, you want a home test about the inadequacies and the problem of religion and the law? Here, look, do this. Next time you're about to do something wrong in life, before you go and do it, just say to yourself, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic, by the way. <laughs> right? Just, just, you know, I'm about to do something. I'm about to be disobedient to God. I'm about to go and do something that I know is wrong. Just, oh, yeah, okay. Will yourself not to do it. See how it goes. Uh, you know, the, the English have a fascinating saying that says, No person is a hero to their valet. It's quite obscure. Uh, another way to put it is, No person is a hero to their hire car driver. And here's what it means is that, you know, a hire car driver, they could be driving around the ambassador to the United States. They could be driving around someone who's cured cancer. They could be driving around Mother Teresa, for crying out loud. But, you know, when you're a hire car driver, you, you hear and you see these people on the mobile phone. You see the way they talk to their family and their friends. In other words, the hire car driver sees all the junk, right? It's very hard to make a hero out of a person when you see all of the junk, now, my question for you tonight is this. Are you a hero to the valets in your life? See, what hit me this week is you are only ever as spiritually changed and spiritually transformed and as spiritually mature as you are when you are in front of your valet. That's how you stop religion. You see, to, the question is, do we live life that way do we live that perfect life in front of these people the the good friends and the family members and the partners and the spouses all the people that see your junk you're only ever spiritually mature as that uh so is it just me or is anyone feeling a little bit of the pressure at the moment it's just getting hot in here <laughs> good good because you know i tell you like pre preaching I'm, I'm a remedial massage therapist you know um, <laughs> I'm just trying to find the knots in you. I'm just, I'm just trying to, oh, that hurts. Good, good. We're getting somewhere. We're going to have a, it's going to be good. So what's fascinating, before I hurt you too much, is that there's some incredibly, com there's an incredibly uh, comforting phrase here in verse 17. It says, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. You're thinking, how the heck is that comforting? <laughs> I don't do what I want to do. Um, 
here's how it's comforting. What Paul is saying there is that Christians actually go through entire seasons when they are not displaying spiritual fruit, and that's okay. That what he's saying underneath all of that is that that actually the mere fact that you are torn up and you're feeling frustrated, maybe even slightly guilty in the process that you're not displaying spiritual fruit is actually a sign of the presence of God in your life because you wouldn't be thinking that way otherwise. It's a good thing. There's spiritual life. There's a wrestle. There's something going on. It's like I always say, Christianity is a bar fight. <laughs> you know, I was up at the Newport Arms and I'm hanging up there in the lovely deck of the Newport Arms and it's peaceful and quiet and the seagulls and the view and a gorgeous summer day. And then all hell breaks loose. I mean, there's glasses smashing and then sort of shouting voices. And these two blokes had been drinking a lot more of the substance that was separate from what I was drinking. It sort of... <laughs> It, it, it riled up at each other and they're going crazy and there's fists flying and there's noise all over the place and there was, it was just mayhem. And then next minute they, they slot themselves uh, inside and the whole place goes quiet. Let's go back to our nice peaceful afternoon. And then the whole lot comes back out again and, and they're still fighting. They're throwing each other across the table. You see, Christianity is a bar fight. Before you come to know God, um, the fight's on the outside. It's noisy. It's obvious. It's messy. But when you become a Christian, the fight goes on the inside. And so please don't be mistaken if you're not a Christian here tonight. Like we Christians, we're not, we're not calm and collected all the time just because we've got our lives together. <laughs> Man, there is stuff going on in here all the time. The spirit, the flesh and the spirit in conflict with each other. And that's a good thing. And what it says to us tonight is that to, to truly lose your religion is actually a hard thing. It's a wrestle. It's a battle. To do that. And that's why Paul says you need to crucify the sinful nature. What does that mean? Look at the problem of religion. Paul now says, okay, you've got to crucify the sinful nature. What is that? What is the sinful nature? Here's what I was thinking the simple nature is, is not simply the part of your heart that makes you do bad things. Uh, look, there's an aspect of that that's sort of half true. If we'd have more time, we could explain it. But it's not simply the part of your heart that makes you do bad things. I think the modern person thinks when they hear sinful nature that the sinful nature is like that imaginary little red devil on your right shoulder. You know, buy the dress, buy the dress, buy the dress. No, he's not saying that to me. I was trying to... <laughs> I was trying to find a female analogy. Okay. Right? We think it's a little, 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 little devil, buy the dress, buy the dress. You know, that, that's what we think the sinful nature is. It's not that. The sinful nature is this, and this is why I'm building on last week that we, we talked about this. It's what it means to, Mag uh, to Maguire. The sinful nature is the partially intact motivational system in your heart that is always building your identity or proving yourself with things other than God. You got that? The sinful nature is the partially intact motivational system that, that is building your identity or proving yourself with things other than God. And so the sinful nature is not a little voice. It's the sticky chewing gum mechanism that is always causing you to build and to prove and to build and to prove and to build and to prove. Now, how, do, how do you get that out of this, Sam? Uh, look, there are, there are some key words here that, are, that sit alongside 
that sit alongside the sinful nature that give us a bit of a clue. Verse 16 and then in verse 24, if you read along, it says, So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Circle that one. Then verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. This word desires pops up each time. And the word, the English word for desires really doesn't get it, what the Greek is saying under there. The Greek word for desire there is epithumia. So it's made up of two words, of the word for desire and then the Greek prefix epi, which uh, we, we have from you know, the word epicenter in earthquakes. So if you have an epi, epi means to be, to be above or over. Epicenter is, 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 is the point of the surface on the earth above an earthquake. And so what Paul is saying there is that uh, be sure to crucify the sinful nature along with its over desires, along with its mega desires, along with its big disproportionate desires. And so what it's saying is that the sinful nature is, is this intact motivational system that is always taking the good things in life the good things that you have around you and over-desiring them to the point that it sucks it into the very center of your soul. And you say, if I just have this, then I am complete. Zellweggers. They're Zellweggers. (laughs) You're Jerry Maguiring. Does that make sense? Okay. So, suddenly the question now comes up. Okay, well, if, if that's what what the sinful nature is, what are these desires? How do I know if I've got mega desires or over desires in my life? Or even better, how do I crucify the sinful nature? Uh, look, I'm going to use a really graphic example. I hope I don't offend anyone. But it's like any good, it's like any good battle. To crucify the sinful nature, it's like any good battle. You've got to do two things. The first one is you've got to identify your enemy. <laughs> and the second thing is you've got to flush them out. You've got to identify the location of your enemy and you've got to flush them out. And so when Paul talks about the sinful desire and what we see here, you see that if, if, if it's a battle, if it's a war that we're in the middle of with our sinful desire, these desires, the sinful nature is, is far more like, I don't know, a long tan than it is Gallipoli. And here's what I mean by that. You know, Gallipoli, World War I, you knew where the enemy was. The enemy, Lone Pine there, they were 100 metres over the other trench. You could hear them. You could see the smoke coming up from the Turkish trenches. You could put those little mirror things that they had on the top of their guns and look down. You could see them. You know exactly where your enemy was. The whistle would go. You'd go fight them. Long Tan in Vietnam, on the other hand, no one knew where the Viet Cong were. They were hidden. They were experts at jungle warfare. If you want to know where your enemy was in Vietnam, you, you had to search them out. You always had to be on the lookout. You always had to be watching them. And so to lose your religion and to crucify the sinful nature, here's the first thing that you've got to do. The first question that you've got to be asking yourself is, in what areas of my life are the bushes rustling? Right? That's how, that's how, you, that's how you do battle in Vietnam. Where are the bushes rustling practically? You know, where am I always shooting my mouth off too quickly? Uh, in what context am I becoming crushed way too easily? From which people uh, do I have my self-esteem deflated from way too easily? Which specific comments about certain areas of my life cut to the depth of my heart too easily? Is that making sense? 
When you see these things happening, when these things happen to you and there's the emotional response, you know what that is? Ah, yeah, okay, it's fine. The bushes are rustling. At least, praise God, you're beginning to identify the location of your enemy, of your sinful nature. Something's going on here. But remember, they're over-desires. They're desires that are over the top of the epicenter, over the top of something that is far, far deeper and more powerful. And so the second thing that you need to do is you need to flush them out. Not only do you need to identify your enemy, but you need to flush them out. You see, in Vietnam, when I was reading up on this, someone was telling me about it this morning. They've been there. The the Viet Cong had kilometers worth of tunnels beneath the surface over there. Guys know that? Small fact. And so they, they, they would just disappear off into these subterranean tunnels and they would, they would just disappear. And so the only way that you could find the Viet Cong is not only identify where the bushes suddenly rustled, but you've got to find the subterranean tunnel that take you to the heart of the issue. Now, what does that mean practically? <laughs> the sinful nature of the Christians like the great tunnels of the Viet Cong. <laughs> the bushes are one thing, but you need to go deep. You need to go underneath. In other words, you need to ask, not only, not only need to say, okay, the bushes are rustling, but then you need to ask, why are the bushes rustling in my life? When you feel that emotional response to something, you need, need to say, well, why is that happening? Why is this thing in front of me causing me anger or is it causing me grief or is it causing me frustration or is it causing me to be deflated? You have to ask, why do I do that? Now, there's a vital key that you've got to have in this, that you, you won't do this process if you don't get this. And it's in verse 24, so circle it. It says, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the sinful nature. Notice the order there. Those who belong first, then go and crucify the sin- sinful nature. I'll tell you what, you will not crucify your sinful nature. You will not go deep unless you have a clear and a real understanding that you belong to Jesus. You see, that's why Christianity is different from religion, because you be first, then you do. Don't you know, every other religion in the world works the other way around. You do first, and then hopefully if you've done enough good doing or do-gooding, you be. You'll be right with God. See how that's critical? So no other religion talks like this. And this is why it's important, because I think Christians do this. You know, when, they, when there's been a moment in your life, and there, I have them all the time in my life, when you haven't lived the way that you know God wants you to live, you do this, you say to yourself, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I shouldn't do that. And you get bad Christian, <laughs> naughty Christian. You know, I need to be happy. You know, I need to put on my smile. You know, I, I, I need to be the Christian version of a McDonald's checkout person. <laughs> I, need to, I need to be happy. What are, you do- what are you doing? You're MacGyvering. You're externalizing. You're just being religious when you do like that. Instead... Here's everything we've been talking about in this series. When you, when you get to that point, when you've identified, you've gone deep, you've got to flush the enemy out. How do you do it? You do it with the gospel. You do it with the gospel. Remember in week two, I think it was, week one or two, was it? You know, when Paul says to Peter, you are not walking in line with the gospel. Week one. Hey, you've got to apply the gospel to your heart. Um, examples. You guys up for a case study? Okay, great. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm living out at North Ride these days and the new Macquarie Centre has opened up. It's now the heart of fashion out there. <laughs> and um, so it's opened up. And so as a result, uh, the mix of people out there has just exploded. It's incredible, a whole range of different shops. And so the challenge is when I'm out at uh, Macquarie now, you know, I'm walking around Woolworths with my trolley, all of these different people from different countries are coming up and they're, they're pushing their trolley down the wrong side of the aisle. 
You know, I've almost had a few head-on collisions with a trolley. It's getting dangerous out there. You know, and, and look, you guys would never do this, but I'm just going to get a bit vulnerable with you. Like, when that happens, this is my thought process. Oh, you silly foreigners. <laughs> we, walk, we walk on the left-hand side in this country. You guys wouldn't do that at all, would you? No. Don't leave me hanging. <laughs> oh, we walk on the left-hand side. Well, I know we've got a lot of Americans in the congregation here too. We walk on the left-hand side of, the, of this country. Oh, foreigners, foreigners, foreigners. Um, Look, I just want to prove, prove the point. You know, this is how you apply the gospel to your heart there. God speaks to me a bit like uh, Sylvester Stallone in Staying Alive. He's, uh, in the movie Staying Alive, Sylve- uh, Sylvester Stallone, and uh, uh, he's one of the characters there, and, and he uh, talks to John Travolta, who's trying to be a dancer and cut it in the dancing world in New York City. And he says to him, what'd you ever do? What'd you ever do? What'd you ever do to get to this point? And so God sort of speaks to me at that point. Here's how it works. Here's how I apply the gospel to that, my head-on collision with a shopping trolley and a foreigner. <laughs> God, God says to me, Sam, what'd you ever do? Did you choose to be born in this country? Did you choose to be able to be five minutes from stunning beaches like Balmoral? Or did you choose to have the brain that you've got? Did you choose to have all the various... Pre- what'd you do? It? What'd you ever do? And more than that, the gospel is... Hey, Sonny Jim, you think they're foreigners? They're they're nothing in terms of their foreigners to what you were from me when this whole bar fight thing called Christianity started between us. (laughs) You think walking down the left-hand side of the road's an issue. You should have seen the way that you live in your life before we met. (laughs) Yeah, we had a head-on collision, all right. And when we did, I didn't cast you out. I didn't mutter under my breath. I welcomed you in with loving arms. Who are you? To not extend that same sort of grace to that person out there. You see what just happened? Just got flushed out. <laughs> One more case study. Um, I'm in a very vulnerable mood tonight. Uh, around 6pm on Saturday nights, I've, I've been suffering from this condition called sermonitis. And basically what happens is I get this unreasonable level of anxiety and fear. And part of the problem is all my junk comes out in front of my valet. It's called my wife, Kristen. And I become incredibly irritable. Uh, I become quite snappy. Uh, I have troubles dealing with the kids. Uh, I don't want to talk to anyone. Uh, I want to lock myself off and go into the study. Uh, it's, it's this sermonitis. I don't know what it is. If anyone's a doctor, I think it could be my biorhythms out. <laughs> but, but it seems to happen at the same time every Saturday night. Uh, no, it's not biorhythms. Here's what's really going on. I get worried that I'm not going to preach a cracker of a sermon to you guys. Now, here's the question. Is it, is it a sin for the heart to want to preach a good sermon to you guys? No. Well, let me rephrase the question. Is it a sin for my heart to want to preach a cracker to you tonight so that you go, oh, wow, he's a wonderful pastor and we love him? Ah, okay. Now that's a sin. Or it's a sin to say, if I preach a cracker of a sermon, everyone's going to love it. They're going to tell their friends. They're going to invite lots of people to Northside. There's going to be revival. Everyone's going to start talking about this amazing church. And I can turn up at the judgment seat of God and I say, look, Lord, in spite of all my imperfections, look at the amazing church that we were built down there in Sydney. Is that a sin? Yes. See the difference? 
See how you've got to apply the gospel to your heart. Look, the gospel is this. God says to me every time that that's happening, that's how I sort of need my, I need my injection of the antidote to it all, is, is I need an injection of the gospel where he says, son, you're accepted already. You're loved already. In fact, they're not your audience. I'm your audience. You, do, you don't do it for them. You do it for me. They just get to listen in to what's happening. And then you're already loved. You're already a, you're already a kid of, of, of me. You're a kid of the king. You're a prince of the kingdom. You have the same identity of Jesus Christ. So therefore, stop. Stop your building. And stop your proving. Building, proving, building, proving. See how it's sticky? It's like flipping chewing gum on the shoe. I suffer from it too, and I'm a pastor. Um, guys, what's... look? All I'm asking is, what, what is deep within the tunnel systems of your heart tonight that are causing the rustling in your bushes? I mean, we all suffer from some form of sermonitis. You've got your own funny name for whatever it is, the big thing in your life. What's causing the rustling? And even more than that, are you a hero to the valets in your life? Are you a hero to the people who see the innermost parts of your junk? If not, then identify these things and flush it out. That's how you lose your religion. How you do it? So um, that's it. Sorted. Right? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> you can't, we can't leave the sermon there because if we do, if we do, do that, then all, all we've done is we've just created another religious system. <laughs> it's Sam's system of identifying and flushing things out. <laughs> so we've just gone from one religious system to the other. So it's really risky that we do that. How do we stop doing that? Verse 25. Verse 25, there's a dynamic in here that is actually beyond us. It says, since we live by the Spirit of God, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And so there's something deep and supernatural and powerful and beyond all of this doing that we do. Of course we've got to do the work, but but we've got to keep in line with the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? What does the Spirit of God do in this whole process? You know, I was watching a documentary on the Battle of Long Tan a couple of weeks ago in the Vietnam War. Some of you are going, oh yeah, no wonder he's on this whole warpath thing. <laughs> um, but it was, it was fascinating watching one of the most iconic Australian battles in history that a lot of people have forgotten about. But basically, Bob Buick and his men of 11 platoon got stranded uh, near a mountain called Nui Dat in a rubber plantation. There were only 30 of them, and they accidentally came face-to-face with between 1,500 to 2,000 trained Viet Cong. Within about 30 seconds, three quarters of Bob's platoon were wiped out by a tirade of silver bullets. And the rest of the boys for the next six hours, shot by shot, um, prayed for their lives as they were in the mud of monsoonal rain in the middle of this rubber plantation, looking all at 50 to 100 metres at a force of 1,500 men. The only thing that was stopping the Vietnamese from advancing on them was that the New Zealand artillery shells were landing on them uh, in between them and the enemy, and it was the only thing that was keeping them out. And so Bob said he was in absolute desperation. He'd become the platoon commander because the lead lieutenant had been killed within that first 30 seconds. And he said he was despairing at the point of death. He was despairing for his life. And in the mud, then he heard it. He heard, he heard the rumbles. He heard the rumbles of, 
And he, he thought he was imagining it at first, and then he heard it, and then, he, and then before he realized it, it was late at night, and then, and then the crack of the 50 mil caliber guns began to ring out from behind him, dug, 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 dug through the bush, and he heard them, and he said they were the APVs, the armored people vehicles. And so soldiers, reinforcements had come in, and so now suddenly there was a hail of silver bullets from over his back for the first time in the entire campaign. And it was at that point that Bob, in being interviewed, he said, the minute I saw that happen, mate, I could have gotten up and done the whole thing again. <laughs> True Aussie style. <laughs> now, what is that? What is, you know, what is it with, that, with the psychology and the, and the transformation that happens in that? Look, there's, there's nothing like that experience for them of reinforcements in the battle. And here's what I'm trying. What's, what's the job of the spirit? What's the job of the Spirit? The, the job of the Spirit is to come in and to make that sound and to say, can you hear it coming? <laughs> can you hear it? Can you, can you hear the rumble? There's, there's reinforcements coming. You see, when we walk by the Spirit, you know, Jesus says, I will send you my Spirit. The parakletos, the one who will walk along inside you. Uh, the role of the Spirit is, 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 to, is to come alongside you and say, it's okay, reinforcements on the way. You see, you might feel like you are losing the battle tonight against your sinful nature. <laughs> you might feel like you're losing the battle tonight in the things that you over-desire. It's the job of the Spirit to give you that same soul transformation that Bob Buick had when he was at the Battle of the Long Tan and he heard the boys in the APVs. But here's the other thing that, that we see in the grand perspective of, of all of this battle. You see, imagine Bob once he got home after the war. Imagine Bob goes in and he burns a piece of toast. Now, what does he do? Does he fling it across the room? You know, does he, he get angry at it? No, it's a piece of toast to Bob. If I burn toast, on the other hand, all hell breaks loose. Oh, nothing's going right in my life. We've got so much work to be doing, and I can't believe it. Now we've got burnt toast. <laughs> Why? Because I haven't been a part of a much bigger battle. Half our problem. You know, but once, when, once you've seen the big battles, you take, can take your little battles like burnt toast. Or obviously the ones that are a little bit more serious than that. And once you, you can take those little battles and wrap them up into the big battle and suddenly you become a person who cuts through life like a hot knife through butter. Because you've seen the big picture and the big battle. What is the big battle? The, the big battle is this, that Jesus Christ crucified got rid of the only thing that can ever really hurt us in the long run, and that is sin and death. And when you see that he was crucified, then we can take our little crucifixions of the sinful nature up into that. You see how that works? You see how you've got to, you've got to see that? You've, you've, got to, you've got to put to death the smaller things in your life, but you only do that out of the resource to say Jesus had the ultimate death for you and I. And so the point is, guys, can you see that this is not easy? This is, this is chewing gum hard. This is sticky stuff hard. You've got to identify. You've got to flush out. You've got to do the work to lose your religion. I hope and prayer for us is that we will do everything on our side. We'll do everything that we can in order to crucify the sinful nature. And on the other side, that, that, we, would, that we would be wrapped up, that we would be um, enthused, that we would be empowered by the beauty of that bigger picture. And let me finish with this, because this is, this is what it's all about. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 onwards, it says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. 
What we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You know what that's saying? It's saying, you've got no idea who you are. What will be has not been made known to you. C.S. Lewis says this, there is no such thing as mere mortals. There is a beauty, there is a wonder, there is a power, there is a gloriousness within you if you're a child of God, that if you caught just so much of a glimpse of it in the mirror, you would be at risk of falling down and worshipping yourself. That's why he withholds that. And so every bit of effort that you and I do in order to get rid of the sinful nature, we don't do it to be good with God or to feel like we're good people. Every bit of effort we expend, we are applying onto our hearts, brasso the way that a a janitor or a housekeeper applies to the nice um, brass handle that is at the front of a high-end hotel. That is that every bit of effort you expend is only wiping away something that is hindering the beauty and the wonder of what sits inside of you tonight. You get that picture? That's, what, that's why we do what we do as Christians. That's why we want to lose our religion. What will be has not yet been known. We are progressively trying to unwind all of that. Um, two types are easy. This stuff's the hard one. Let's pray.